welcome to this very special conversation. My name is Barry Shepherd. I am a PhD researcher at Queen's University Belfast. I host a TV show in Belfast called History Now, but my area of research is the uh, rural Irish organisation Winchinatira, the People of the Land, founded in 1931 by Father John Hayes. Tomorrow, as we're recording this, tomorrow is the 90th anniversary of the founding of the organisation. And I'm really delighted that I'm getting the opportunity to speak to Mr. Martin Quinn, who's a community activist and former president of Munchenatira. He's also an author, has a book out recently, and perhaps we'll just get a, a mention of that later on in the conversation. Today, we're just going to talk about Canon Hayes, the foundation of Munchenatira, and what it meant to rural Irish society. So, Martin, you're very welcome, and I'm delighted to get the chance to speak with you today. Thanks very much, Barry. I'm delighted to be involved in this uh, historic, I suppose, commemoration of Muintanatira, because uh, my own involvement as uh, former national president uh, brought me into uh, an area that I previously didn't know an awful lot about, you know, and uh, I knew of Canon Hayes and I knew of some of the various projects, but I, I got to find out an awful lot about the history of the organisation and indeed the history of the man. Yeah, so you're, you know, almost learning on the job, learning the history on the job. Well, my background comes from looking at organisations that developed in the 1930s against the backdrop of the Depression. But what I didn't know was in the 1940s, my father's side of the family who were from Clock Jordan and County Tipperary were involved in Munchenatira. So I thought there's a personal thing here for me as well to uncover and unearth. And it's just snowballed from there. And what I'm doing with my research is looking at the, the many international connections the organisation made, especially in the period John Hayes was in charge. But I suppose to begin with, you like anyone, your formative years perhaps shaped the destination of your life. And this was certainly the case with John Hayes, born on the 11th of November, 1887, and born into a country in turmoil. He was actually born in exile in a landlady hut. Can you tell us a bit about that and you know what your understanding is of it? Yes, well, Father Hayes, as you mentioned, was born in a landlady hut, um, quite near to the Hayes family farm. You know, they were evicted from the farm. And uh, John Hayes, as you say, was born in a time of great turmoil in Ireland. And I think that one of the things that he spoke about at every opportunity was that he was born in a landlake hut. Indeed, some of the times his audience wouldn't have realised the significance of the landlake and uh, the fact that he was born in a hut. And uh, he was nurtured, I suppose, on the tales of times in that particular period. And the evictions and the nailing up of doors, the quenching of the fires in the hearth and all of that. Growing up then in in a hut where I suppose the significance of it could never be underestimated because it had a huge significance on his life, on his health and on the health of uh, other members of the family that were born there because they, they, anyone that was born there suffered from rickets and uh, the time was a very difficult time in Ireland and uh, I think that, you know, he, he knew so much about it as a child growing up and all the tales of it that had never lost a significance with him and it was something that remained with him right throughout his life. One of the central figures of that period was a, a man Hayes very much admired and that was Michael David. and interestingly you say there that Hayes at every opportunity would speak about his family's eviction and being born in a landlady hut. There's a lot more written about Michael David than John Hayes of course and a lot of people 
who have written about Michael David comment on how that eviction during the famine of the David family in Mayo drove Michael David in his future endeavours and he kept referring back to that eviction. So he is in many ways parallel what David was doing. Yes, indeed. And uh, I think that there was huge significance in the fact that, you know, the Hayes family, where they were evicted from and the land was owned by Lord Tran Curry. There was major disputes, of course, in relation to people being evicted from that land. The the whole movement, Land League movement, was something that resonated uh, very strongly with John Hayes. The, the, the Land Act, which was introduced, which Gladstone introduced in 1881, had the effect, uh, had a good effect there because uh, it, the new reform was good and it was uh, far-reaching. Perhaps, I suppose, its most beneficial clause was that tenants were to be allowed to take cases to a land court. All of this, I suppose, would have had huge significance on John Hayes growing up. As you say, that, that, that Land Act, Gladstone's Land Act, the Hayes family, among others, you know, weren't necessarily beneficiaries of that because that dispute with Lord Cloncurry lasted 13 years. So it was a long time. It was very protected. People think that in some cases this was settled after a few months or a year or two years. It was a very long period for the Hayes family. It was indeed. Uh, I mean, what started out, I think, uh, thinking that this would only be a couple of months, went on, as you say, for approximately 12 and a half years. And what is very significant, I suppose, as well in that period for the Hayes family was that seven funerals left that hut in the 12 and a half years. You know, so, I, I mean, the Hayes family were surrounded by funerals during that particular period. And I mean, with with infants and with children, as well as with older members of the family. So uh, all of that would have had a huge significance on John Hayes and on his thinking. Yeah, and it's a, you know, it's a, I think it's impossible to exaggerate the, the impact this had upon him, but it also had an impact upon his brother, Mick. Stephen Wren, in his 1960 biography of John Hayes, shows how advanced nationalism and republicanism crept in. Mick went on to play a role in the War of Independence and the hunger strikes of 1920. But John was probably diverted from that path by achieving a scholarship to the Irish College in Paris in 1907. It was the life-changing experience for him, wasn't it? It was indeed, I suppose. That was the most significant thing really that happened in John Hayes's life. I think that scholarship was hugely significant. You couldn't overestimate, I think, the significance of it because, I mean, it changed his thinking. Um, it also allowed him to experience other situations in other countries, you know, and it allowed him a greater understanding, I suppose, of what was happening across the world. This was uh, a major thing for him, uh, his education in Paris. I, I think that had he followed the route of being uh, uh, studying here at home, uh, in Ireland, maybe John Hayes's life would have been very different. Studying in Paris was, as uh, as I said, hugely significant. Yeah, and, and the time that he arrives in Paris in 1907 is hugely significant in terms of French Catholic history. Two years previously, you have the act of separation, separate church and state, and this caused a backlash against young clerical students like John Hayes was, and there were lots of fights between local boys and the Irish students. But what is really interesting is this causes a backlash as well in another way. Social Catholicism in 
France takes an upturn. And I think John Hay has witnessed a lot of that, whether it be in the rural French countryside or in Paris with the beatification of Joan of Arc. And I know Stephen Wren talks about that. So there's a lot of things going on outside of his studies that impact upon his thinking. And I think that, you know, European French social Catholicism really makes a strong impression on him going forward. Yes, I, I think so. You know, in relation to him uh, studying in Paris, I suppose the only city he had seen uh, prior to that was the home city of Limerick. So mm-hmm. this was a huge change for John Hayes. And as you said, the beatification of St. Joan of Arc was a highlight of his time in Paris. And uh, he mentioned that quite frequently. Um, you know, the French went went wild, I suppose, uh, with joy at that time. For John Hayes, it was also a very significant occasion. And many of the students at the Irish College disliked Paris, and they disliked the people too, whereas uh, John Hayes had a strong feeling for, for Paris and for the old historical and religious bonds that existed between France and Ireland. And as you say, he saw he saw another side, I suppose, to the world in Paris. And uh, it was something, uh, I'm trying to think of the proper word, but it was like a sponge, I suppose, if you like, for him, because he was able to absorb all that was happening, whereas other people maybe weren't so keen on, on what was going on around them. Uh, he took a keen interest. Mark Tierney, who wrote the book The First 70 Years of Munchenateer, which was published in 2004, he talks about that experience, like you say, like a sponge. He's soaking up all these different ideas. And Tierney says that by the time Hayes was ordained in 1913, he had become a Francophile and a European. Becomes fluent in French, but not only visits the rural French countryside, he goes across to Belgium and there, and he's picking up ideas there and what Rin talks about is very interesting that he comes back from all these adventures really enthused and gives talks on them in in the the Irish college but there's something I want to pick up on there and it's very interesting that you said he looks at the the long view the historic view and I think when you find that whatever period of John Hayes's life he's always referring back to history so he was very passionate about history I think yeah I think that everything in John Hayes's life came back to his experience in the Langley Court that that had uh, had a huge effect on him but it also allowed him as, as you said uh, when he was in Paris and going over to Belgium it allowed him to be able to take a different view when I look back on John Hayes's life I'm amazed really at his thinking and his European dimension and how this influenced him in what he was later to do in rural Ireland. And I think that there hasn't been enough credit, if you like, given to what he thought about, what he enabled to do when he came home to Ireland, setting up a point in Atira and his involvement in community development. And he's reaching out to other people. That's one of the key things that I have great admiration for John Hayes is the fact that he wasn't closed off in his thinking. In fact, quite the opposite. He was really open to what other people were doing, what they were saying, and what they were thinking about. This is something I think that we should celebrate uh, at every opportunity. And it's great to have this opportunity to talk about Muintanatira and about the life of John Hayes, because uh, these opportunities don't come around 
too often. As you say there, the, probably the only city he'd really experience of was Limerick before he goes to Paris. Paris is hugely cosmopolitan and he's getting into all these different European influences. He comes back in 1913 and he has a couple of temporary appointments in, in small rural parishes, one in, in County Meath. But it, it isn't that long before he's moved off to Liverpool. And that was another of these hugely influential periods of his life. Yeah, I think the Liverpool one was, and I wouldn't have known an awful lot about it when I joined Winton at Era. But I think that having spoken to people like Tom Fitzgerald and others in Winter and having learned an awful lot about Canon Hayes, I realise how hugely significant in time his time in Liverpool was, not alone because of the fact, you know, that uh, he's a brother there in in, uh, jail, uh, in Wormwood Scrubs, and um, the fact that uh, not alone that and the, and the whole significance around that particular time, but also what he saw and witnessed in uh, Liverpool, in the slums there. Mm. I think that, you know, he's thinking later in, in Ireland, he would often refer back to uh, his time in Liverpool. The difficulties that he saw and that he witnessed, you know, particularly for the Irish in Liverpool at that time. And the whole event, I think, in Wormwood Scrubs is uh, is amazing, really. You know, it is an amazing story. The fact that he persevered and that he brought people around him. Ultimately, his objective was, I suppose, to get visiting rights for his brother in Wormwood Scrubs, uh, but also for other Irish that were there. And that particular time, reaching out to other people, to orange men and to people of all denominations. I think that the one of the one of the things that was reported in the in the the Daily Mail at the time around the attack the attacks that they suffered. You know, when one of his things would be, of course, to bring people around to say the rosary and everything. But of course, he had another objective to it. The fact that he was able to bring people along with him to have such a significant influence at that time says an awful lot about the man. You've made a very good point there that he interacted with Orange men and Protestants attached to Ireland and and the north of Ireland. That's, you know, stretching across those sectarian lines because the sectarianism in Liverpool at that period was really bad. And I think it was made worse by what was going on in Ireland. And I think for context, we need to say that John Hayes was in Liverpool for eight and a half to nine years, the bulk of the Irish revolutionary period. Relations between Protestants and Catholics in Liverpool were never great. And he did reach out. His non-sectarianism is a, is a massive part of the identity of Munchenitira when he comes back to Ireland. And I think that sets it apart from a lot of the organisations that came in the 1920s and 30s. Would, would you agree with that? Yes, uh, I think so. Um, it didn't make any difference to him who he spoke to. Mm-hmm. You know, he used every opportunity to speak to people. And whether it was an orange man, whether it was uh, an orange MP, he, he, he made it to go and meet them because he felt uh, I think as he said to one of them you know are you just representing a section of the people or are you representing everybody you know and uh, I think that the fact that he could do something like that I think was hugely significant but I think that when he came back to uh, to Ireland I think all of that um, and all of the effect of it as you say he was there for a considerable number of years so the effect of that will have had played a, a huge part in his thinking um, about where Ireland was going to go in the future. 
in the 1940s, he comes up to Northern Ireland, he comes up to Belfast, he addresses people in St Mary's Hall on the Falls Road, he also comes to Queen's University and meets people of all different religious backgrounds and political persuasions and tries to seek out common cause with a lot of them. And in 1942, some of them come down to Rural Week, which is a big, you know, was a big part of, of Richard Kier. He definitely sought to influence, I suppose, the, the hierarchy as best he could and to bring them on his side, if you like, of what he was thinking and uh, to get them thinking, I suppose, the same way. Now, not everyone, of course, agreed with John Hayes. Some would remonstrate with him. I recall reading that you mentioned one of the occasions about he going up to the north and he meeting people of different denominations and religions. When he came back, one particular bishop said to him, what was he doing going up there and mixing with those kind of people? And John Hayes responded by saying, those kind of people don't have horns on their heads. I was there with them to hear their views and to respond to them. And this was something in later life in Bansha as well that he brought with him. But he brought, I think, something which was very unusual at the time for a Catholic priest. He brought with him the view that everybody was equal. You know, he, he didn't see any difference in somebody of one religion or another. And I think that was amazing, really, for a man at that time, reaching across to people, extending the hand of friendship. That was something that he, he did right throughout his life. When he comes back to Ireland, there's a lot of division. You've got the scars of civil war. You've got the Great Depression. All these factors brought him to establish Munchenateer Limited, which was the first incarnation of Munchenateer in 1931. Can you tell us a bit about your understanding of the, the first incarnation of Munchenateer? Yes, well, of course, he was in Casalini, uh, Lockmore Casalini. And uh, at that particular time, he, he dabbled in rural industries and how he could go about getting people to work, I suppose, the land, if you like, and to benefit from working the land. In doing that, you know, he came, I suppose, he was bringing a lot of his thinking from his time in the, in the family farm in, in Moher. This all put him of the thinking that uh, rural industries was the way to go. His time in Castellani, a lot of people think of um, Winton Atira and uh, it being founded in Tipperary, but it was the original time in Castellani, I think, when um, Winton Atira formulated. So that's where I think the whole origins of Winton Atira came from. I, I suppose... And, and these comparisons, it's not just me making these comparisons. In Munchenateer publications like Rural Ireland and the landmark in the 1940s, people made the connection between that and Plunkett's cooperative, rural cooperative movement. I think that maybe it was too close to that model in the beginning. And I know Rin talks about the influence Plunkett had upon Hayes' thinking in that regard. But it's that Munchenateer Limited, almost it was slow to take off. After a couple of years of Munchenateer Limited, he gets this opportunity to go to Argentina for the 1934 Eucharistic Congress. And I think this is one of these other life-changing experiences that he has. 
Yes, that was an amazing part, I suppose, of his life. And, you know, it was held in the Argentine in 1934. Father Hayes was chosen. Uh, he was invited by the Palatine Fathers of the Argentine to give uh, missions, retreats and lectures and uh, in preparation for the Congress. And um, I suppose he was really far advanced of the Irish delegation in planning his journey because he really had all his wits about him. He knew going out there what he wanted to do. I mean, he wasn't looking at this as, as, a, as a holiday in any way. You know, he was looking at this as a very significant event and a role that he could play and uh, how this could be promoted in Ireland. And he did that by, through the media, through the Irish media, mm -hmm. you know, through the likes of the Irish Independent and other newspapers and reaching out to them and in getting them to take articles about his travel and his travels to the Argentine might have gone fairly unnoticed, I think, mm -hmm. were it not for those kind of articles yeah. that he was writing and sending home, you know, because they were very important in highlighting his whole role out there and mm -hmm. what was happening. It was really, I suppose, uh, a major event in his life. It was something I, that he referred to often mm -hmm. and his diary, the diaries that he kept would, would have indicated how significant it was. His diary, as we talked about, is, you know, passion for history. His transatlantic diary often referred to the coffin ships and people making that transatlantic passage almost 100 years previously. Another aspect of it is he was very, very media savvy. And as you say, you know, the Irish Independent took travel articles from him, but he contacted the Southern Cross newspaper in Buenos Aires. And by the time he landed in Buenos Aires, he was already a familiar name. The Southern Cross, of course, is very connected with Ireland, with um, a priest from Tume in County Galway established it in the 1870s so he was quite media savvy and preparing the ground for himself for when he got over there. I think in terms of developing his skills as a public speaker, he was already a very well-polished public speaker, but delivering lectures to people in, in Argentina, I think developed that on. He did attempt to establish Munchenitere. I don't know if how serious it was taken there or how you know serious he pushed the issue, but there he met up with Bishop Patrick Lyons, who, who would go on to become Bishop Patrick Lyons, and he brought Patrick Lyons into the Munchenitere fold. So he, he came he came on board when they got back so it was very significant yeah i think he was very influential figure in in father hayes's life as well um because, as you say, he was a man of paramount importance. Uh, that was on senior lines, later become Bishop of Kilmore. And uh, from the Muinter angle, the Monsignor had, you know, had been a man that, that Father Hayes wanted to bring on board. So I think that um, he, he was inveigled, if you like, into it. I think that there was there's a whole thinking that Father Hayes was bringing to people and that was hugely was hugely radical in ways uh, but was also very forward thinking and um, the representative as as he was in Buenos Aires at the time in the Argentine he was seen as being the representative of the Cashel Archdiocese and his his significance I think out there um, was huge uh, you mentioned about the newspapers, and he he managed to do that within hours of landing there. He had a special interview to a representative of the Standard, mm -hmm. 
you know, he managed to, he had a great rapport with the media. And I suppose a lot of that was the fact that he had, he was such a good orator and that he had very good one-liners as well. Mm -hmm. And he, he was able to capture headlines for the media, which will which many people wouldn't have been able to do at that time. But he was. That's why I think that they treated uh, Father Hayes, you know, uh, with, with such respect and reverence, I think, in the Argentine. You know, he had a huge impact on people. And when he spoke and when he delivered uh, lectures or anything, you know, uh, when the men spoke at all, people were uh, captured by him. So, but when we come back to Ireland, mention it here is in a, a sort of transitional period before they come to 1937. They wind up the Mention Limited and embrace the vocationalist program. But I think hand in hand with that goes the expansion of the rural weeks. So we, we kind of see a, a, a new, to use that uh, land league phrase, a new departure. Uh, I think he'd appreciate that. It, from 1937 onwards, we see a different Mention don't we? Yes, we do. We do. I think the whole uh, thinking behind Winter uh, changed. And I suppose there was a new and broader outlook to the organisation. And uh, that was needed, uh, I think, uh, to encompass, I suppose, all classes of people. Because that's really what Father Hayes wanted. He wanted everybody involved, you know. And he didn't want, which was his great saying, he didn't want... Toppins looking down on, on a halfpenny. He, he, he wanted uh, all classes of people involved. And he wanted to see industry. He wanted to see people working. And he wanted to see a better life for people. And that's why, you know, the, the forming of Winter Tira in Tipperary, um, because that's where the first uh, branch of Winter was, it was in Tipperary after he came there as a curate. And um, when he was given a public welcome um, on his return from Argentina, um, there was a huge concourse of people um, assembled to welcome him back at that time. And I think that, you know, that's kind of remarkable mm. that he had gone out to Argentina uh, to preach and uh, he was given such a huge public welcome that people turned out in, in the thousands, you know, came as Father Hayes returned to Tipperary. And that was kind of, I think, a new dawn, if you like. Um, you know, all of those people coming together, it was a new dawn for Canon Hayes. And then and it led to him to founding the new Winter, as yeah. as uh, as we see it, the yeah. new organisation Winter Natira in 1937. And uh, I think that is a hugely significant time for the organisation. It's also a hugely significant time for Canon Hayes mm -hmm. because he was looking at other ideas in relation to rural Ireland and particularly to rural industry, you know. And this was, this was where Muinton Tira played such a pivotal role and was that he uh, was responsible for bringing rural industry to Tipperary Town mm. and to other places where Tipperary leads, Ireland follows is mm -hmm. a famous uh, <laughs> saying. And I suppose that's where Father Hayes was thinking at the time. And, you know, when he brought people together in Tipperary, I suppose he, he, he brought people like-minded, but people that he felt would, would work towards the ideals 
yeah. you know, towards the ideals of development and this whole concept of Muintras. And I think what separates it from the first incarnation of the of the movement is they tailored their, their projects to local needs. It wasn't a, a top-down blanket set of rules. They were tailored to the different parishes. Yeah, I think that, you see, the different things that happened when Canon Hayes uh, was in Tipperary, when he had come to Tipperary and the different things that happened. You know, if you look even like at the likes of what he set up for the allotments, you know, mm-hmm, the allotments yep. scheme. And then there was the Lionel factory and the glove factory and the opening of those particular industries. He, he envisaged that this was a starting point that other places that could be replicated in other parishes around the country. So that it was important for him to ensure that communities were established, that people were brought together in a kind of a a council Mm -hmm. or a cooperative, in a cooperative way. And this was where the whole thing of the community council evolved from, you know, was in bringing people together uh, to ensure that they could do the same thing in their parish. That what, what he had able to do in Tipperary uh, before before Winter was founded, uh, you know, as it was in 1937, that uh, that this could be done in other parishes and that he could see that by bringing people together that there was never-ending possibilities. It was all about uh, ensuring that everybody came together that there was no distinction, that there was no class distinction, and that, you know, that was why this community council uh, thinking and the setting up of community councils all over the country. And it was kind of remarkable in a way that this happened. But in another way, it wasn't, because rural Ireland was crying out at that time for somebody to lead them and for somebody to show them the way and to show that it was possible to uh, build this uh, parish hall and to build this facility, to build this school, to have group water schemes and uh, subsequently, of course, to have rural electrification. Mm -hmm. And Canon Hayes was the man to do that. And travelling all over the country at all hours of the day and night in order to spread his message and to encourage people to do what could be done in the in the neighbouring parish. And I think that that was a lot of it, you know, giving examples of this has been done in this parish, you can do this here in, in your parish. And it had a domino effect, you know, it just was like the ripple, you know, dropping the pebble into the ripple, the ripple grew yeah. wider and wider. I think that was really uh, what, what he did. And it was remarkable that it was done and that parishes all over the country uh, mobilised themselves. Of course, Father Hayes was in demand to come to every parish, you know, whether it was to speak or whether it was to open a facility or whether it was to encourage people. And he tried to do that. And so Sinus was that eventually, you know, the man's health gave way really was because he was doing this. I want to talk about later on in his career, but what you've just brought up there, Martin, is very significant. You know, he was everywhere within Ireland. He was outside of Ireland as well, all acting on behalf of the organisation. And 
he, he's made a canon in Bantia, where your parish, Mark Tierney, in his book that we mentioned before, says that the church authorities and his superiors made a mistake. They should have relieved him of his parish duties and let him focus on the organization and perhaps that would have extended his life. Leader of an organization and figurehead is a full-time job as well, but as, as well as his duties to his parishioners, he was doing two full-time jobs at once. So do, what do you think about that? Do you think they should have just let him focus on the organization? I don't, because I don't think that he would have wished for that because Canon Hayes, I, I think if that happened, it might have removed him from the people to a degree. And when I say that, I mean that he was very much a parish man. You know, he was the man that could call into a house for a cup of tea or, you know, a chat or whatever, a game of cards. I, I think if he was was given that role, it would have removed him from that aspect. Uh, because particularly in Bansha, I know that from my own history, that he he was really entwined in the parish and in the lives of the people. And that's what kept him going. You know, that's where he got his ideas, was in the parish, meeting the people and talking to the people. And even if it was what was seen as maybe mundane conversations, you know, his mind was active all the time. So uh, he was constantly thinking. So it could be the smallest thing that would trigger something in him. And uh, I think that he loved the parish. The parish was what he lived for. And I think that was very evident in Bansha, where, you know, there was a stream of people nationally and internationally his door. And it didn't make any difference for Father Hayes, whether it was a traveling man that came to his house. You know, Father Hayes would bring him in and would uh, often give him his own meal. And this was something that wasn't probably very well known, but that happened. This was the type of man that he was. So I think if you took that away from Canon Hayes, you would have taken a hugely important part of his life. And uh, I'm saying this is a Bancher man, but it's quite evident that Father Hayes loved Bancher, that he loved his time in Bancher. And it was there, I suppose, where he really grew and developed. It was there that he was able to roll out a lot of the initiatives that he was able to campaign for. You know, the likes of the, I mentioned the group, Water Schemes, and, you know, the parish plan for agriculture mm -hmm. and the rural electrification, which I suppose was one of the most significant things that, that has happened um, in rural Ireland. And it can never, we can never, I suppose, speak about rural electrification without speaking about Canon Hayes, because it was he drove the whole concept of rural electrification. It was he went to parishes and encouraged people to take up rural electrification. Where in parishes there was a lot of scepticism, there was a lot of worry and concern that this was going to cause great uh, trouble. Maybe that, you know, that some people saw that rural electrification was in some way the devil's work, if you like. Right. Uh, they didn't see this as bringing the light, uh, mm -hmm. which Canon Hayes saw it. You know, he yeah. saw it as bringing the light to people, you know, both the light of the electric light bulb and the light into people's houses and homes. He saw it completely different. So he campaigned vigorously for rural electrification. And the success of the rollout of it 
is down to Canon Hayes. I know the ESB had to do the work, obviously, but the success of it was down to Canon Hayes. Suppose we could talk for hours and hours about the impact of the rural weeks that we mentioned that began as rural weekends. But all these ideas around rural electrification, the parish plan for agriculture, all had their, you know, genesis in these rural weeks. And there's one example, you talked about international guests coming to Bansha. They all came to rural weeks, no matter where it was. But you had international guests from right across the world. People who were like Arthur E. Morgan, who was a Quaker. He worked in the Tennessee Valley Authority, bringing electrification to rural America in the 1930s. He came to Rural Week. So you have to imagine that rural electrification was a topic for discussion when he came along. This international imprint that mentioned here began to have towards the end of the 1940s. It really took off in the last number of years of his life, where he went to America, campaigned right throughout America, met Arthur E. Morgan again, but significantly met the the rural clergy member, Monsignor Luigi Liguti of the National Catholic Rural Life Conference, who in a way took Hayes under his wing and brought him into international networks of rural activists. Yes, that's uh, very true. And, you know, when you talk about Canon Hayes and his time in different countries, I mean, uh, Cardinal Cushing as well, mm-hmm. you know, th- th- he was very significant, uh, had a very significant influence there. You know, the fact that he could relate to to everybody, to, to King and to Pauper, you know, it made no difference. And I mean, you know, we haven't even mentioned about his, uh, his encounter with Mussolini even, mm-hmm. you know, and there are so many different aspects to Canon Hayes' life. And uh, over my shoulder there is uh, something that was given to me by the Hayes family when when I was national president, and it is the original symbol of Wintonatira, and uh, which is the the cross and the plow. And uh, it was something uh, I suppose that the land uh, was very significant to to Canon Hayes, and that was I suppose from coming from a farming family and everything, but the land was hugely significant. And he saw the the protection of the land was also uh, very significant to him. And I think that all of those people that you mentioned there that he encountered and that came to to rural weeks and came to Bansha and sat with him and discussed various aspects of life. It, it was amazing, really, that uh, a simple man, as he was a simple man, could have such significance and could play such a huge part in, in the development of Ireland. And this should not be ever forgotten, I think, is the development of rural Ireland and how it developed under Canon Hayes's remit, because it was him, Canon Hayes, I suppose, and his influence, I think, uh, with government and his stubbornness, his doggedness, I suppose, as well, in going to places, in going to government and refusing to come away from government without, uh, you know, something being delivered. I mean, that was the case in the Lino factory in Tipperary. The Lino factory was earmarked for, I think it was Navin. But um, Canon Hayes was determined to bring the line of factory to Tipperary. And I think he refused to leave government buildings without, <laughs> before getting a, a, a commitment to it. That was the kind of man he was. And I mean, 
even in Bancha, you know, the, the, the jam factory, as it was known, that was a major uh, achievement, you know, to have in excess of 40 people there, open 40, 50 people employed in a jam factory. And a lot of people like would have criticised him. Uh, well, at least some people, I won't say a lot of people, some people would have criticised him then when the jam factory failed. But of course, you know, a lot of industries failed. And uh, it was the fact that it survived for so long and that, you know, it brought life to a rural village. You know, you could mention all the successes. You would have to mention all the successes, all the different things that he brought and developed uh, rather, than, rather than the failure. And I think, you know, Canon Hayes would be forced to admit that he also failed in different aspects of his life. Uh, and he would have said that. He would have hoped that things could have been done differently. I, I think that was uh, significant about him. And uh, the kind of person that he was, I, I know that in my own home, there's a photograph there to, behind me as well of Canon Hayes. But there's one that we have of uh, Canon Hayes because he would have performed the marriage ceremony of my mum and dad. It's a, a photograph that we we treasure. Going back to what I was saying earlier about Ken Hayes and the man in the parish, you know, he tried to do as many things as he could. He tried to be at the marriages, to celebrate the marriages, uh, to celebrate the births, to do the funerals and do all the other things. Um, so that's why it was a parish man. Parish life was hugely significant to him. Yeah, Martin, you've made a very good point there. Concern with the land, concern with the people of the land. Of course, that's the, you know, the name of the organisation. But my understanding of it is that as Munchnitir grew and, you know, people from around the world coming through Bansha, he developed a concern for people, rural people throughout the world. And I think when you get up into the 1950s, he's in Rome, he's in Barcelona at all these different congresses dedicated to rural people. But he dies at a relatively young age of 69 on the 30th of January, 1957. How big of a hole did that leave in Munchnitir? Well, I think that um, his death was... Was, it was devastating, really, for the organisation and for the people. It really was devastating uh, because people felt that they had lost a, a friend. It wasn't just that they had lost the leader of the organisation. Everybody felt, I think, that they had lost a, a close personal friend because regardless of whether they were in, in Bansha or in Ireland, or across the world. You know, people regarded Canon Hayes as their friend. Even people that met him, maybe on just the one occasion, they came away feeling that they had met a friend and that they had a friend for life and that they had somebody that they could call on. And that's why his funeral probably, I, I, I would put it down as being one of the most significant funerals in the history of Ireland. Because um, never before, I think, would you have seen uh, the Taoiseach and all members of the government bow one in attendance and members of the Dáil and Shannon and representatives of public organisations and the leader of the opposition, along with the Taoiseach, uh, who was uh, Johnny Costello, the leader of the opposition at the time, Eamon de Valera, uh, present. Banshee Church 
was full with dignitaries because there was no room for the ordinary person. Uh, but the ordinary people didn't mind that because they realised that Canon Hayes was such a significant figure in the lives of church and state that he deserved the recognition of the church being devoters to dignitaries and the ordinary people standing in the porches and around the, the walls of the church and, and the graveyard, uh, being there as one big family, if you like. It didn't matter that they couldn't get into the church. The fact that they were there was this one big family that Canon Hayes had spoken about. I think that the fact that he died relatively quickly and though his health was declining for a little bit, he died relatively quickly. I think that that would have had uh, a huge, it left a huge hole in the organisation as uh, to who was going to replace him and to how the organisation was going to continue. And a lot of people would have considered that was the end, you know, that that would be the end of Winton Atira. But I suppose it is to his legacy and it is to what he had built up, that the organisation continued and indeed flourished over the years. That is, I think, a testament to his legacy and the people as well that he had surrounded himself with that were strong enough to keep the organisation going. Uh, I, I think that there are an awful lot of things that you can point to uh, since his death, which have his stamp, if you like, on, on and I think that he would be very pleased with um, many of the initiatives that have been roll, rolled out for in-community development uh, since since his time. He became president of Winton Atira. A lot of people say that it was a self-appointed role um, when he was in Casalini. But I think uh, it has been very important that that role has continued uh, national president and that it is seen as a very significant and important role, and that Moynton Atira is under the patronage of the President of Ireland. I think that all of those things are very significant and are a lasting testament to Father Hayes. Martin, uh, I think we could probably go on and talk about the post-Hayes eras because there's a lot going on in there too. But I think given that the significance of the date, we'll, we'll just focus on uh, Canon Hayes himself. But before we go, I'd just like to congratulate you on your, your recent book. Could you tell people who are, who are looking in and listening in what it is and, and where they can find it? Yes, I suppose uh, it was an initiative that I did during lockdown uh, in March of 2020. I, I knew that it was going to create a huge gap and uh, I didn't particularly know what I wanted to do. But uh, one of the things that I did kind of religiously was I went for a walk every day within the restrictions and it put me thinking about uh, people, including Canon Hayes. It put me thinking of people from my area who had uh, achieved notoriety uh, on the national and international stage. I suppose I was really thinking nationally at the time. I, I thought of uh, people like Canon Hayes who came 
directly straight to mind. And I thought of maybe people that have played a role in the War of Independence and others like that. So it put me thinking that it would be nice to document them, to give uh, an account of people from the area, just a kind of synopsis of their life. And I ended up with 86 people from the Tipperary town and district. And these were people from the arts and from the political and uh, from the judiciary and from sporting. So there was people across different things and I even included you know a couple of people I included somebody that had survived the Titanic and I included a man that had been pardoned posthumously by by the president and all people from the the area that we knew nothing very little about and you know one man who who comes to mind who left the parish of Denohill where Dan Breen is from but this man left the parish of Denohill and went out to Ohio and founded a banking uh, organization called Fahi Banking. And it is still trading and doing. It's very strong. Uh, his descendants are, are still operating the bank. You know, so I came across people like that and I put together a book and I called it Tipperary People of Great Note. And I asked uh, Dr. Martin Manzer if he would write a foreword to it. And he gladly said he would. And I'd come across a painting of his, of his late mother's on a card that he had sent to me at one stage of the Galtys and the Glen of Aherlow. And I thought it was a beautiful painting. And I contacted him and said, any chance could I use that painting for the cover of the book? And he said, you surely can, but I have to ask my daughter because she has the rights to the painting. And Fiona agreed readily uh, to using it. So uh, it was published by Arpen Press. It has been a huge achievement for me to do it. It's, it's a brief, as I say, synopsis of the 86 people, but it gives flavour of their life and times and where they came from and where they went to. Martin, thanks a million for joining me today. It's a real honour because, you know, as I say, I've been researching uh, the organisation for a number of years now and it's just uh, an honour to speak to a former president and someone who knows the organisation and its history well. So thank you very much. Yes, and I suppose to finish up, I should say, you know, Canon Hayes is uh, dearly remembered in, in Bansha, of course, where he's buried. And he, uh, for anybody that wants to come to Bansha, everybody, of course, is always welcome to come to Bansha. Um, and, you know, if there are people around, they'll tell you a bit about the history of the different initiatives that were rolled out in Bansha and to visit his grave directly behind the church in Bansha Cemetery. Thanks very much, Martin. Thank you, Barry.